This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. All right, so welcome to the special edition live bike shed with our... <laughs> We've closed the doors. We have a captive audience. Yes, and they, they've been locked behind you, by the way, just <laughs> FYI. So thanks for coming on, Sandy, our special guest. Delighted to be here. Well, <laughs> Let's start, Derek. Uh, our, first, our first episode we ever did, which is like 65 episodes or so ago, we talked about our experiences using the Sandy Metz's rules, using Sandy Metz's rules on a project. And uh, it still remains, I think, our like, most popular episode. And it's part of ThoughtBot's like, concerted effort to make it seem like you work at ThoughtBot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're doing a pretty good job at that because I see people being like, ThoughtBot's Sandy Metz. I'm like, yeah, it's working. I have seen that myself. <laughs> <laughs> If you did work at ThoughtBot, I think your your job title would just be Sandy Metz. <laughs> I'm sure you get asked about, like, are, are the rules, like, the number one question you get asked about uh, at podcasts? It wasn't even in, like, so practical. Hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm, what is object-oriented design. Okay, practical object-oriented no, design. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. It wasn't weren't even in that book. Uh-uh. It just came out no. of, like, an interview for that book? Or? No. I, wow. Well, actually, okay, the first... I gave those rules. Okay, here I am. I, like, I need a timer, you know that? Because I can go on and on and on. So I'll try to be concise here. I was uh, helping a company in San Francisco doing a little consulting gig. They had the classic many things too big problem, many things too connected problem. They had a lot of, like, 5,000 line active record models. And so uh, a lot of controllers that knew everything, a lot of views that needed 20 or 30 instance variables. And, and they'd actually gotten to the point where it was easier for people, like if you came in that code base and you needed to render a view, you would just instantiate everything in the controller and set all the variables because no one had any idea which v- variables were actually necessary anymore. There were so many of them. And so they were way, like if you think of a teeter-totter, they were like way over here. And so at the end of the week I spent with them, they asked me for some, you know, I wanted to give them concrete advice. I, I don't even know if they asked, actually. I probably just inflicted it on them. <laughs> and so I tried to give them some rules that would push really hard on the other side, right? I don't want you to have a 5,000-line active record model. I want you to have a 100-line active record model, right? I don't want you to pass 50 arguments. I want you to pass three or four. And so I made those rules up as an antidote for a very specific bad situation. And then I went on the Ruby Rogues, <laughs> and in about the, in a in a podcast that got way out of control, <laughs> at about the hour <laughs> and twenty nine minute mark, when I thought no one would be listening, I <laughs> I repeated them on the air in public, <laughs> and that was like a bomb went off. You can imagine because like we're so like there's five rules in this. There, there's actually six rules, and the six rules that you can break any of the first five as long as you can get your pair to agree. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and people, uh, why is it that we're such cargo culters about things? Like, that's the rule that people forget. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah. there's where they came from. 
Yeah. I mean, we used them on, we were talking earlier before we started recording, we used them on a project at ThoughtBot. We met with you after like maybe doing it for three or four months yeah, probably. Yeah, it was long enough to get some real experience with it. Yeah, yeah it was very really helpful for me. It was super fun. Like it was a, it was a lot of fun and it, it boiled down to like, like you said, they were an antidote to like having many large yeah, too many things. big things. And like, I think you could just boil it down to make smaller make things smaller and things. N- and name more things, yeah, like give right. things yeah. um, more of a proper name. Yeah. And that's kind of what I took away from it. I don't follow them as rigidly on any other project. Because why would you? Right. right. If I want to have seven lines, I'm going to have seven and lines. If 110 <laughs> lines, like is not is 100 is is 101 really worse than 100? Right. Yes. right? It's a slippery <laughs> it's a slippery slope. I, I mean, here's the thing I would say. Like I'm. I wrote code for so many years. I don't, I don't write that much code anymore, but I wrote code every day for 35 years, for longer than many people at this conference have been alive. And one of the things that it taught me was a keen belief in my own fallibility. And so all I'm trying to do is make errors that are easy to recover from. And I find it really easy. If I make too many small things, it is really easy to put them back together. If I make too few really big things, it's really hard to break them apart. So I'm just trying to get the direction of error to be the one that's easiest to recover from. And small things is that direction. Right. Yeah. yeah. Nobody nobody ever complained about giving too many things explicit names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the naming thing. Names are hard. Yeah. Right? That's that's one reason why we don't make small things because you have to identify the concept and give it a name and it's much easier like like in my talk tomorrow I have a thing where I send where and then some to a subclass of ARL to an active record subclass. Right? And, like, what is that? What do I mean? What was my intention? Mm-hmm. Like, giving it a name and making it a scope in that class is really different than letting the semantics of objects that you don't own leak out all over your application. Yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons um, in uh, relation or the API is it's, it's a method on relation and it takes another relation. Mm-hmm. And we specifically uh, did that to optimize for name scopes. But yeah. like a side effect of it is if you're calling or from a controller, mm-hmm. it's actually much more verbose because it's like article.recent.or, article.pinned. Uh-huh. And so if you want to avoid having to repeat ar- the class uh-huh. name over and over uh-huh. again, you have to give that an explicit name. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it probably is a thing. Yeah. It, and if it's a thing, if it's a thing and you name it and you put a method somewhere that everybody can reach, then they'll use it. Yeah. And y- instead of having it leak out everywhere and be broken because you only change half the places when something changes. I mean, but names are hard. I mean, I'm, it's all we do, really. Right. Yeah. Right. And, That's all we and do. Make up names. Like there's oftentimes where I identify like a thing where I'm like, I want to take this and make it, I want to break this out and give it its own, give, I like to think of it as like giving it its own space to mm-hmm. to become mm-hmm. what it wants to be. And I'll just stare at the empty file for a little while. Like, <laughs> what am I going to call this? What am I going to name it? And so I have a lot of files named foo.rb yeah. until I come up with like what, it, and then I see what the methods are on it. And I'm like, did that tell me anything? No. Okay. Uh, okay. Thesaurus time. Like <laughs> uh, yeah, so here's the, here's the point in the podcast where I turn the tables, right? Okay. Like, what are your naming strategies? That give it a bad name. That's one strategy. Just get a name on. Just get a name out there. Yeah. And so, do you have the same strategy? No, I just sit and stare at it. Yeah. So you don't go forward until you have some name that seems. Uh, oftentimes, I'll write out the type signatures of what I'm trying to do. Not necessarily. I mean, of course, it, if yeah, I yeah. don't name this yeah. thing, I can't use that yeah. type. But mm-hmm. of the methods that I think are going to exist on, I'll write out the type signatures of those, and sometimes that helps me find uh, mm-hmm. find a good grouping. Yeah, I mean, it's it's painful to get the name wrong. I feel like, but that's just a tooling thing. Like, cause you're mm-hmm. like, oh, now I've got to rename the test, and every place I called it, I've got to rename it there, and like. But I realized somewhat recently that like sitting and waiting for a name was costing me more than like like I'd just rather have mm-hmm. a wrong, the wrong name and do the search and replace I need to do and rename the files I need mean, to rename. Like, yeah, right. right. Totally. <laughs> I mean I go both ways, right? Sometimes sometimes if I write 
the food class and the bar method and put the content in, then it's mm -hmm. clear to mm -hmm. me. Right. Right. But sometimes I just give it a name that was I thought was good enough, and then I if I hate that name long enough. <laughs> like I, I definitely, I had an experience recently where a buddy of mine, we were writing some code and every Sunday, we, we got together every Sunday, every Sunday we would like revisit some part of the code and we would be unable to remember what something did. And we would talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and we finally would figure out, oh, it's the thing X. And then after about a month of that, we were like, why don't we just change it to name <laughs> to <Right>. thing X, <laughs> right? right. Like we have to reinvent the wheel every week. So. Right. And like also trying to match, like there's, there's also a delicate balance between like finding the right name based on the code that exists in the class mm -hmm. and finding the name based on how you talk about it externally. Mm -hmm. Right. So like mm -hmm. I've been a lot, I've been involved in a lot of projects where it's like, Oh, well, you know, our customer support people to our customer support people, they say order, but internally that's actually something else. And it's like, Oh, you may have gotten a little cute here. Like maybe it should just be what we call it order order. Right. <laughs> we should just be ex what we call it externally. Like I have, very strong opinions about that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, just, <laughs> like, let's not give it a different name. That's not going to help. Right. Like, those people pay the bills. Let's talk in a language that they can understand. Right. And, ma and mm -hmm. just making sure we're, ma we're mapped between, like, the external mm. names of, our, of the things in our system and the internal as much as possible. Sometimes you can't because there's, like, the external name actually represents two different concepts yeah, sometimes, inside yeah. the application. So, yeah. But sometimes we can help them. Mm -hmm. with understanding that it's two different things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if it is, I, I don't know. You know, Now most of the code I see is other people's code because I, I teach classes in object-oriented design. And one of the things that I see is, that, is how hard we as a community, how, how much difficulty we as a community have making up names. Mm -hmm. right. And I see a lot of names that are meant for other programmers. Names that are geeky names about what something does, that has the type in it, that talks about what happens inside the method instead of a name that asks for a thing that's a name that's in the domain. And so uh, code is, it makes code really hard to understand when we write, when we name things after stuff that means something to programmers. Right. So are you an anti-verb in class name? Oh my gosh. Person? You know, they have, I read, I spent a couple of weeks in that rabbit hole mm -hmm. trying to read every, I read everything I could find from all the smart people about how to name classes. And there's a whole school of never, never slap your hand, use a verb. Right. Mm -hmm. But, it, like, the, like, here's the thing, I think, especially in Rails apps or anything that uses a web framework. So when, when the request comes in from the user, right, they pressed a button on their keyboard, they're asking for a procedure. Mm -hmm. They want the whole thing to run, whatever it is, and the right answer to come back. Now, as that message you know, travels down the stack, at some point in the middle, it's probably objects, right? It's things I want to reuse. Yeah. But the very first thing, like after the controller, if I have some sort of process manager object, it's going to be the doer of the thing, the printer or the manager or the whatever. And I am unapologetic about that. The, the controller, if you will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's funny, right? I, I wish if we could go back in time in Rails, I think we would go closer to the direction Django is, where each individual action has a separate controller. Because mm -hmm. that's effectively what we mm -hmm. always want to do exactly. anyway. Right, there's very seldom overlap between, like, index is its own thing. Right, and then, especially index. Right. Right. <laughs> and it's, and right. you end up, and especially when you get into the world of, like, before, uh, I can't say before filter anymore, before actions. Mm -hmm. When you get into the world of before actions, they only apply, they often don't apply to all the actions. Mm. At that point, you're like, well, this is mm. weird that I have all this code here. It's I'd like really you end up with this lack of cohesiveness yep. in a controller, right? Yep. I have all this code that does different things in different places and doesn't right. change at the same rate. Right. Mm. And really, the entry point is the action. So it would almost mm. be better if each action had its own thing. And we could share based, we could share with composition. Yeah. Instead. I mean, my, my favorite is before action only index. 
why, why would you not just put that code in index? Why? Yeah. <laughs> because then you'd be over five lines of code. Yeah. <laughs> that, that whole thing where it's like using modules, right? To pull right. code out to make it appear to be smaller. Yeah. Right? It, it, if you have a module that you pull out and you only use it in one place, then what you're saying is, well, I don't really know what my things are and I'm not composing them. And that's exactly what happens at before action, right? Yeah. Because it's some arbitrary rule they're trying to not violate, perhaps. Well, it's interesting. I was having a conversation uh, yesterday. One of the questions I was asked was, people complain about um, the inheritance structure of Active Record. So why don't we remove Active Record base and instead mix in a module? Um, and it's like, I think there is, I think there is still this idea that uh, this kernel of an idea that a lot of people have that a, a module is somehow different than inheritance. Yeah, they, they, it's true. Sometimes I tell people, okay, we're not going to use inheritance for that, and they say, well, how about modules? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, it's no different. And, and to me, they're a little bit worse, right? Because they're a little sneakier. Yeah. And I want it like if you feel like you need to use a module, you should probably be using composition. Right. Well, especially if you end up having uh, class macros get called from inside modules. Yeah. Um, like yeah. things that change the behavior in really, really non-obvious ways. There are times, though, like especially in a Rails app where it's just like, I could try and do composition here, or I could just do the Rails thing and have a concern in the controller that right. does whatever. I mean, there are, there are places where uh, the API does make it very hard to inject something. Right. Yes. And, there's, and, there's, and, I, and I find there's like a delicate balance between, like, even if you could do something... It doesn't necessarily make it the best way to do something mm -hmm. in a Rails app, so, right? So, like, I could do I'm something that would be a better practice here. And the example I like to give is, like, rendering views, how um, it's kind of magical that our instance variables turn into what gets rendered in a view. And that's some scary code in Rails. Right. And, and you could <laughs> avoid confirm. that by just calling. You could explicitly call render, and you could pass the local variables you need. And mm -hmm. you could do that, and it wouldn't be too hard. Mm -hmm. But somebody else who came onto that project would instantly say, why are you doing this? Yeah. Look at all these lines of code. And like, it's better, I think, but, so, but what's, too much, what, too different. I mean, we have to define better, right? <coughs> mm -hmm. Better by whose lights? Better in some purely academic way? Right. In, a, better in a vacuum. Better in terms of <laughs> the amount of money it costs my business to produce software, mm -hmm. right? The, like, that's the only criteria that matters for me. And so, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I can distinctly remember hearing, okay, th this is the only part that's distinct. I heard DHH say this in some keynote at some RailsConf. Okay, but I know it was him, and I know it was a keynote, and I know it was at a RailsConf. He said something along the lines of, if you don't follow the Rails away, it ought to hurt. Mm -hmm. That sounds like something he would say. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I swear, if we watched all the keynotes, you would find that. Yeah. And, and so here's the thing, and, and it's true, right? Like, the, the framework has very strong opinions, and if you arbitrarily try to use your own opinion when it's not necessarily an obvious benefit in the behavior it's going to hurt you're going to write code that no one can maintain mm -hmm. and you know I, I mean my life is a little non-typical for rails because you know if i make money these days i make money by teaching classes in object-oriented design and people don't call me if they're completely happy with their code right. same thing here yep. right <laughs> yeah so well i'm sure you guys are in that same business yeah yep. and so the apps i see are businesses that have succeeded beyond perhaps their wildest dreams with very large legacy code bases that are out of control. And what they're not base camp. They have lots and lots and lots of domain knowledge that really ought to be separate from the framework. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to use uh, all the parts of the framework to arrange their code, and it's costing them money. And so what I tell those people is, like, I want their apps, I want them to do, I don't know, you know, I made up. 
I made up the, the Rails way. Another rule. Well, so, yeah, I made up a rule. <laughs> like, like, here's the thing. What does Rails want you to do, right? They want you to invoke an action on a controller, to know the name of a class, to set that class in an instance variable, mm-hmm. to send a message to it, and to send that response back to your view. And sometimes in order to do that, you have to make a bunch of your own objects and put them in the middle. Yeah. Right? And so I'm j- I feel like I'm telling people, do what Rails intends you to do. But in the framework, like there's not any stock place in the framework to drive the edges apart, the request and the database persistent apart. Right. There, there's no clear guidance about all the stuff you put in the middle. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think that's also not necessarily the place for Rails. Because a good Rails app is just a good Ruby app that yeah. uses Rails yeah, as its yeah. glue to the, to the database and the HTTP layer. I, I, like, I love Rails, right? I, I think that, like, how did this happen that people have Rails apps that are um, hard for them to maintain and where the, I mean, stuff is too big, right? right? Like if Rails wasn't such a success, such that people who didn't have to know a lot of OO could write really big apps, mm-hmm. they would probably not have big apps to complain about, right? It's a tribute to Rails in some way that these applications exist at all. And that they lasted long enough to and get that. Th- yeah. That these businesses won in the marketplace, yeah. But it, but it doesn't, uh, you know, we're not excused from trying to find ways to give them advice that helps. Right. No. Now. Just because they won, and they maybe should they have known better? Well, maybe <laughs> did they? Well, they didn't. Like, let's get real. Well, in Rails, like we optimize very heavily for getting started, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, but is what open source self selects for right now because that's uh, that's how you optimize for adoption. Um, and so, a lot of the tools that we provide, um, the main thing that comes to mind are Active Record callbacks can turn into a tangled mess when mm-hmm. overused. Yeah. And I do think that using Active record callbacks for everything isn't necessarily the Rails way, but a lot of people see it yeah, as the Rails yeah. way. Like, I think that term has started to become conflated into mistakes that intermediate Rails developers make on medium to large-sized apps. Mm-hmm. I'm going to push back okay. against you saying that it's a mistake to optimize for the entry-level Rails app. Because I don't think so. I, I don't even think you have to make that excuse, is what I'm saying. Right. Right? Uh, like, I, I think that there's a time when apps grow up to the point where they need a little more r- straight-up OO. Right. And that you can't expect the framework to help with that, and that we have failed in providing that information for people. I think it's also that um, we, we're failing to provide the lower levels, and that's that's one of the things I've been trying to do in, inside of Active Record a lot is give you the level right below Active Record, mm-hmm. um, and you know the framework that we use to build the framework, uh, and probably even will end up going a, a layer or two deeper than that. But so that way you can. Because, yeah, when an app gets big enough, it has its own needs, and, the, and those are going to differ from Rails' opinions. Um, sharding is one that comes up a lot where mm-hmm. I don't think Rails should have an opinion because if you're at that scale, you probably you have You better know how to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we could make it easier mm-hmm. um, like to throw out the idea of a single database connection per thread without throwing out everything mm-hmm. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... I think the other interesting yeah. thing to note is that it's this isn't a unique to Rails problem. Right. I've, I've worked on lots of yeah. programming languages with lots of web frameworks, and they all have large classes. They all rely mm. too much on framework. It speaks again back to like, we're still doing Rails 10 years later, so we've been talking about this for a long time. Mm-hmm. But uh, these problems exist in Java apps. These problems exist in C-sharp apps yeah. I mean, in the same they way. They exist in apps, right? Yep. Like, yeah, because we haven't figured this out yet. <laughs> well, it's hard because we can't give things good names. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's interesting seeing it when you start to take it towards its conclusion. I mean, conclusion's the wrong word, but when you, when you, when you follow it out. Because uh, Shopify, for example, uh, our god object is shop.rb. It is a 6,000-line active record class. Mm-hmm. It mixes in 87 modules. Yeah. The first method definition starts on line 635. 
<laughs> and there are more class macros after the third method definition. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's just so exactly. Uh, it just seems. I have like some rules that you might want to try following. <laughs> so, but okay. Oh boy. So here, here's the thing. Big things get bigger. Yes. That's the rule, right? The mm -hmm. bargain we have as programmers is that you're going to put stuff where stuff like it is. And so once they reach that tipping point, it's really hard to get stuff back under control. Yeah. Like, does it, it seems pointless to make one small thing. I mean, that's like, that feels like hiding code, right? Right. Like, you expected <laughs> it to be there, and I stuck it off in some corner where you'll never find it. Right. <laughs> and so getting out of that requires some sort of intention. Yeah. But at the same time, I can't help but think that class is costing you money oh yes absolutely like do people like working on it do they break it every time something changes does anybody understand it i i honestly don't know. i would guess the answer to <laughs> the, what would they, do they no yes no what i don't know what the answer is to be what order they would be but i bet people hate it yeah oh, I bet i'm sure if you look in code climate at the churn versus complexity chart it's way up in the right hand corner right, right. it's highly complex and it churns all the time right. and, it, and it's probably because you know this is what i see when i go when i, I like i often ask people when i go to sites for that piece of information Show me what files change a lot versus how complex they are. Mm -hmm. And it's always, there's like, they have this beautiful curve where things that never change are really high complex and then it falls off and then things that change a lot are really simple. And then there'll be a few things up in the far corner. And those things are always the most important models in their app. Right. Because those are the things that require that we understand what we're doing and we don't usually when we're writing them. Yeah. And then once they get up there, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Make I mean, that thing smaller. It's the same, right? Because I, I do open source full time, and um, Active Record Base has been my main mm -hmm. target for for a while. And I I can't really remove a lot of the public API methods, mm -hmm. but uh, I've been trying to reduce the number of you know. There's the there's the tweet that was going around like two years ago, where if you just do Active Record uh, Base dot new dot instance methods dot count, it's like yeah. six hundred or something. As they say, the blast radius is large. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that number is down. That went down in four two, and it's down in five. And um, the the Active Record gem. Is is now actually an implementation of the data mapper pattern under the hood. Um, and all of the methods that do have to stick around, right. I'm trying to turn as many of them as possible into one-liners that delegate to some other object and remove all of, the, right. all of the private instance methods. And so that process is exactly what happens, right? Yeah. When you figure out, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. You know, we, can't, we don't get to say, Shh, I'm going to close the doors and we'll do a big refactor and be back in two years. Right. Like, that's not an option. And so it, in some ways, it's the most interesting problem left in programming that grown-up problem of changing the tires on the car that's moving. Mm -hmm. uh. I think you see, you see a reflection of the same problem when you look at teams transitioning to SOA. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. if you do it too early, it's just a complexity multiplier that can kill your business. And if you do it too late, it's almost impossible to do it well. Uh, I, you know, Aaron says he loves microservices because his method calls don't have enough latency. Right. <laughs> you heard that joke? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, we have, we have scaling problems. How, how can we fix them? Let's yeah. add HTTP uh, in the middle of all of our method calls. I mean, I go a lot of places where they have a big architectural mess. Mm -hmm. and so they have a monolith and it's slow. Mm -hmm. And then they there's some pressure somewhere from the bottom to go to microservices. And Sarah May had a talk last year and she was, she was bang on, right? If Like if you can't make small objects and make them collaborate safely in a big monolith, you have no hope of making microservices work. But I, th <laughs> right? I think that's why they're, they're so popular is because it's our reaction to the fact that we as programmers are generally very bad at enforcing the boundaries between the modules mm -hmm. in our system. Yeah. 
And if you int- and if you it's put hard. HTTP there, it makes yeah. it a, it makes it a little. Let's make it slow. Yeah. It makes it slow and makes it painful to go across that boundary, at least. I, I mean, I, okay, I can distinctly remember a situation when I was still at Duke where I wanted to write Jim uh, basically to do to build queries, to build search queries in SQL, and a lot of apps needed it, and I didn't really know what I wanted, so I thought oh, I'll just put it in an engine. And it'll all start there. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, I don't need an engine for to start with because I'm a good programmer. So I'll just write all the classes inside this Rails app I have, and it won't get connected to anything else. Right? It'll be easy. And and when I finally sat down and tried to make it an engine, it had leaked. The semantics had leaked everywhere. It was such a pain in the ass <laughs> to rip it loose from everything. And some of the problems were kind of hard. Yeah. And so it's it's just like if we're allowed to reach into other things, we will. Right. It's hard not to do that. And we also work in a language that has send and instance variable get. <laughs> Using them wisely. Yeah. Almost <laughs> never. <Yeah. laughs> there have been a, hand, a handful of cases. Okay. So I would see, I wrote small talk for a long time. Mm-hmm. Back in the day when you didn't really have to deal with other people because there wasn't an internet. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. Don't laugh. And so I'm pretty careful. Like, I love send, and I know the perfect use case for send. I mean, like, if you, it's really nice to let the users pick different things in the user interface Mm -hmm. and combine them into a method name that you dispatch. Mm -hmm. That's the perfect thing. And I want people to let me do that. The alternative is a really ugly if statement. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm more complaining about because you could do that with public send. Mm-hmm. I'm, oh, talking, yeah, I'm yeah, talking about yeah, specifically yeah. calling private methods yeah. on other <laughs> objects. Okay, I've done that too. Yeah. But, so here's the deal, right? This is my rant about privacy. Using the private keyword, I was using somebody's gym again, and they had a method that wasn't in the public API that I needed, mm-hmm. and they had marked it private because they didn't mean for it to be in the API, and it hadn't changed in seven years. Okay, what does it mean to be private? Like, what are you telling me? I think you're telling me it's unstable. Hmm. That can be one reason. I, it, like, if you hide stuff from me that I need, don't blame me if I break in and use it. Now, that doesn't mean right. it doesn't mean you can all do it, <laughs> right? But, it, I, and I understand that Jim, the creators of Jim, like, I'm an I'm a end-of-the-line developer. Right. Right? I made gyms that other people used at my shop, but there's, a, there's definitely a set of concerns that you as a Rails person have, right? That yeah. I can play much more fast and loose with the rules. Okay, so this actually gets into something that I've been uh, looking for the right place to talk about it a little bit because um, a lot of people don't realize, like, ARL is not part of the Rails public API. And ARL in particular has breakage almost every major, every time there's any version of Rails released, ARL, which actually does follow Semver, but only ever has major version releases, mm-hmm. uh, has its own breakage and interactions with Rails, you know, c- c- can break uh, a good bit. And there's a lot of call for it to become public. And there's a lot of call for a lot of the Rails internals because people uh, use Rails internals all the time because we don't always provide everything people need to do their jobs. And it's not always as simple as just taking what's there and saying, okay, now this is public API because it needs to be thought through and be something that we're confident with maintaining. Well, it's not like, like what happened in the past, right? Like we regret many of the APIs that we have now because Kent Beck said, you'll never know less than you know right now. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's how we live. Right. And so, I mean, OK, despite the fact that I would defend to the death my right to break into your private API and use one of those messages if it hasn't changed, right. if it hadn't changed in eight years, I, I would defend your right absolutely to be very cautious about what you release publicly. Right. Well, and then right? it's, you know, 
hopefully hopefully <laughs> upgrading works because uh but um with, with Arial in particular it's interesting because um i've been talking for a while about my plan to sort of phase out relation because uh, i think there's a lot of fundamental flaws with it as a query builder and basically it, 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 it's mostly summed up as um a relation represents it's, it works in, it's in set theory, right? It represents the results of a query. And that's our primary unit of composition in Rails. And I think that is the wrong level to have as our primary, uh, as our primary unit of composition. Main, uh, and this gets reflected a lot in why or had to be written the way, the way it did. And so what I've been wanting, but my, my rough plan is, is to uh, introduce all of the public APIs that relation would need to exist as a low maintenance gem because we're, we're not going to do 2, 3 to 3, 0 again and just change the query builder and mm -hmm. everybody that has hurt. to break their apps. <laughs> and so relation needs to live until the end of time. Mm -hmm. um, but that means that I need to introduce public APIs for it to exist on its own. Mm -hmm. And um, just since we were all here, we, um, you know, we, we actually started to discuss how do, we, how do we go about doing that? Is this a thing we wanted to do? And then it was brought up, okay, what's going to happen to ARL? Because we've been unhappy with ARL for a long time, which is why we haven't made a public API. And so we, d we did finally decide that we are comfortable with the plan of exploring alternate query builders and phasing out relation. And if we're going to go that route, there is no reason for ARL to remain private. So in Rails 5.1, ARL will be introduced into the public API. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Into yeah. a thing that's going away, yeah. but you know. Uh, yeah, and that, that confuses me a little bit, right? So it's a thing that's going away, and yet we're going to put it in the you're going to put it in the public API. Well, because I won't have a reason to break it anymore. So that people. Will I mean, it will still work, right? But yeah. it, but it means that we're going to be focusing our breakage somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. So the, the private versus public thing to me, like I maintain two gems. One of them is an authorization li authentication library that I didn't write originally. And I feel the pain of almost everything being public because yeah. it's like I can't change any of this, right? So then when I wrote my own gem, I instead of looking at it like what needs to be public and what needs to be private, I kind of looked at it as like what does the user want to do? What do I want the user to yeah. Sorry, what do I yeah. want the user to do? Yes. That's public. Yeah. Everything else is private. Like, even if I have to jump over myself to make it happen, like, I'm just going to, because it was like, everything is a reaction to mm. the circumstances you found yourself previously in, right? So I'm, yes. I have probably yeah. gone too Maybe far. Maybe the other way. Yeah. Right. And, um, and but I, I certainly like that because it's, uh, particularly because it's a new library, right? So I don't know exactly how people are going to use it. It, it so would it's be like, interesting if you could tell, like, to get the stat about how many times they're Breaking into private methods. Right. right. <laughs> that would yeah. be useful. Oh, like, there, I don't think there's any way to get that piece of right. information unless you could have it mail home every time they called it. Right. <laughs> I guess you could. It's Ruby. You could probably <laughs> notify yourself when they invoke that method. You know, it is one of these things where, like, when we have an API that we want to deprecate or change and we're trying to evaluate how big of a, of a problem is that going to be, we can evaluate in the context of our apps and we have a pretty broad range there. But it's really like... Yeah. We're just making a guess as yeah. to any, if anybody's actually using it in the way that we're breaking. Because it's it, we it, we could do a survey, but that, that even that wouldn't get. There's like, no way to find out, is there? Not not unless you go put something in every method call that calls home <laughs> when it gets right. invoked and they collect those stats. Right. Would anybody mind if we introduced phone home into every method <laughs> call? <or else? laughs> That's gonna work for you, won't it? <laughs> um, but there, there's also the second class of user there, depending on what your your gem is doing, because you also have to consider the users who want to build plugins to extend what your gem is doing. That's why I always I always advocate for building one level of abstraction down and making that public APs. Hmm. Like there also it also becomes hard to document because you you kind of want that do, uh, to be in separate RDoC hmm. uh, repository from uh, from your from your main API. But I think it's an important thing to have and be yeah. pleasant to use, if only because it makes it more pleasant to build the thing that you're building. The, well, that was exactly the situation I ended up in, right? Like it was a lower, it was a thing that would have been in the lower level API yeah. that never changed. It was very stable on their side. Yeah. And and the, you said a thing a minute ago, like you said you 
were too loose and then maybe you were you were stricter you're not right. yet the jury's still out right, right. <laughs> whether or not you're too strict but you said i made the gym so that they could use the things i wanted them to use yeah exactly and that to me is a thing that that's what this person did to me in this gym mm -hmm. and i hated it because <laughs> you have no way to predict how i'll use your code mm -hmm. and and the restrict like you imagine i'm limited by your imagination now <laughs> right <laughs> right, we had, and like the, the RDoc thing is interesting because like we do have that second layer down and that's specifically what I kept as private because right. I was like, I don't mm. quite know, like it's a gem that supports creating database mm. using Rails and we only support Postgres out of the box. And I knew people were going to want MySQL and I knew I didn't want to build it. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> yeah. okay, I'm going to need to build that second layer down, mm. but I'm not ready to say like, I'm committing to this being like public sure. API. So like I tagged them with extension, which is not a thing, yeah. but like I tagged them with our doc that says like extension. <laughs> yeah. And so people can go and like the idea being if somebody said, I want to build this on MySQL, I could say, okay, great. These are all documented. The, here are the places. Here are the places. Yeah. Yeah. It's not public API, but then I could say like who depends on my gem. Right. And I could look at how they're used. Then mm. like it's a much more controlled environment because then I can say like, oh, uh, scenic MySQL depends on my gem, obviously. Let's go see how they're using these mm -hmm. classes that yeah. I built as like the next layer down and decide whether or not am I gonna break if I'm gonna break it then I need to talk to these people and coordinate a release or, you know, I need to kind of come up with some sort of workaround. But. Well, and I think that gets into, um, uh, right, that, this gets into the, the understanding how users are using what you built. Because the, uh, the question I was, gonna, I was wanting to and ask was is, gonna, yeah, did so you here. open an issue or a pull request <laughs> to make that method no, public? No, I didn't. It was, it was, it's been a while. Sure. Yeah, I suck at that. Sorry. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's useful. Yeah, like, we, like we don't always know. I should have, yeah. That's right. There's no way. And, and the thing I was going to say that you had me thinking of was it's that whole, like, now we're talking about the problem of communication between human beings. Yeah. Yeah. All problems are people problems. Yeah. <laughs> and if it was, if there was some way to know, if these things, like, either we are evil and recalcitrant and in, in each other's way, or we mean well and we just don't know enough. Yeah. And if we could solve the knowing enough problem, like, all everything that we've talked about could be solved if we could just get enough information. Yep. But that information is really hard to get. Well, even if we had it all, like, if I, I, if I went and, and looked at every single person in this room's Rails app, and like got all of the information about the use, specific use cases you need for your domains. I would never be able to process all of that in my mm -hmm. head. I would explode. Right. The core, so public-private is one thing, and I have a friend who's a Java programmer, and it drives him nuts anytime he has to use something that's marked as final, which is a thing you can do mm -hmm. in Java, where you can mm -hmm. say, like, you can't inherit from this class. And it's like, really, see, that's the thing. It's like, don't tell me how I might want to right. use your code later. Right? But that's right. a conversation yeah. that's happening in Swift yeah. right now, where they're deciding whether or not... Am I making this up? They're deciding whether or not things should be final or not. Anybody? Swift programmers? Anybody? Mm. Yeah, I'm okay. not sure. Anyway. Um, we, have, we, have a, we had a similar thing in Rust when we ad, were adding a, a thing called trait specialization, and, and there was a big discussion around whether it was going to be virtual by default or uh, final by default. Right. And I think that's the discussion they were having in Swift as well. And I think they may have, like, I think they started with not final by default and then switch to final by default, which is, like, that's a language level decision. And once you make that decision, that's fine. But if you're playing in Java, where inheritance is like the thing, and then you're just like, nah, my classes yeah. are final. It's like, well, why? Why are you making them final? You, you know, in some ways, okay, I'm gonna reveal my vast ignorance about this topic here, but uh, again, I have a bias, right? I mm -hmm. came from small talk, mm -hmm. and I segued through Java a little bit, hated every minute of it, and then felt saved by Ruby. Mm -hmm. And so I have spent the last 20-some years writing code in languages that had enormous faith in my ability to do the right thing. And along with that enormous faith in my ability to do the right thing, they give me the freedom of everything. Mm -hmm. And I was somewhere in Sweden talking at a bar after a conference, 
and some statically typed guy had a little too much to drink and he was trying to like I was carrying the banner for all of dynamic programming languages right and he wanted me to explain to them how that could possibly work <laughs> how it could possibly work he, and he was very adamant that it was a seriously bad idea and and I told him you just trust people hmm. yeah. you just trust people and he said they're not trustworthy and I said well they shouldn't be writing Ruby <laughs> yeah. like they should write Java right yeah. and so that like I really prefer languages that will allow me to shoot myself in the foot if I do, but give me the power to do that. I, I like that too. And we have this argument inside ThoughtBot a lot because we have a lot of people who want to write like Haskell. Yeah. And strongly, that, that yeah. is like, so you think Java is strongly typed or statically yeah, typed. It's, yeah. it's not compared to Haskell or Rust. Like ha- right. Rust has strong types as well. And Sean and I have talked on the show before. Like I'm just, for whatever reason, like I'm just more comfortable being like, yeah, I'll give you this thing. It's kind of like mm, this, and you know, it's a thing. It'll work. <laughs> I mean, I, you I can you can treat it like a like an array. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I like, think the biggest <laughs> benefit of sta- of a statically typed language is not necessarily in the compiler checking everything. That is a useful thing to have, mm-hmm. but it's that it gives you a way to express the semantics of the types, which which exist whether you're in a statically typed language yeah, or yeah. not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, the biggest problem, like the statically typed people laugh at us in Ruby because they're like, well, you don't know <laughs> what what APIs your roles have to implement. Like, how do you even tell people that? Yeah, do you write, right? How do you right. know that you've done it? How do you know if you've broken it? It's real, like you have to do that sort of RSpec shared behavior group thing or some kind of module thing in Minitest yeah. to even document it, which I'm fine with, right? But... <laughs> They find it laughable that that's a thing that we even have to do. And I find it kind of laughable that I can't, like, I can't, well, you can't do it in Ruby. Can't subclass string. Can't, like, can't change string? Really? How can you survive when you can't change string? Like, how can you write code in a language where you can't change the base types? That seems crazy talk. I don't know. We've we've uh, we've started removing most things that subclass uh, core types. Mm. So like active active support safe buffer no longer subclasses string. Action controller parameters no longer uh, subclasses hash. Because usually if we're subclassing it, the behavior we want to change needs to know about mutation. Yeah. And we don't want to have to track every possible API change. Gets back to the le- leaking out, right? It's yeah. easier for them to leak out because you don't control the entire API. Oh, that was the uh, the thing I was going to mention earlier. Why like send is uh, still is a useful thing to have because there are times that I want to make an, a, a method public because I need to call it from other objects and it often only exists to be called from other objects except so the definition of public API in Rails is documented on api.rubyonrails.org but okay. um, like it happens once a week or so um, usually it's around ARL I'll mention ARL is not part of public API and they're like oh well then why is this method public visibility yeah, it's like a different definition. Right. Yeah. We don't right? have because we yeah. don't have package visibility, and yeah. we, right. have, <laughs> so, <laughs> we have public um, you know, and private. It's a thing that would have been public, but I make it private because I don't want to have that discussion with people on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, it goes back to the whole communications thing, right? Like, I want to tell when I write code, I want to tell people what's safe to use and what's not. Right. That's all we care about, right? Mm-hmm. It's safe to use this, and it's not like I reserve. This is stable. I reserve the right to change these things. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice if I could have a couple of levels of instability. This is probably okay. Mm-hmm. This you should avoid. <laughs> this at you know peril of your yeah. right <laughs> and so it, if you could do that then people would be uh, able to choose their own level of risk yeah. which mm-hmm. you can't now and that's all i want like just give me all the data i need to make my own bad decisions and i'll be responsible for them and when you make your bad decision 
that's you are responsible for them and then you just back them up with the copious amounts of tests so that yeah. you know when they break totally when yeah. you upgrade the version of that dependency mm-hmm. and something's changed or whatever i mean that that that, that whole choosing your level of risk uh gets into um like what ember and rust do with feature stability and what i'm hoping to introduce to rails in in in, in a new release cycle although that's a whole that's a whole rabbit hole that Maybe we shouldn't go down, um, but I, but like I agree that you should definitely be able to say I want to opt into unstable features because I am able to tolerate the instability. I think that is a very useful thing to have, yeah. especially if you're releasing frequently. Should we do some Q and A? Yeah, Q and A. Anyone have questions? <laughs> Was I warned about this? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody? Like as I said earlier, the doors are locked. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, surely you have some questions here. I'll browbeat you. Want to ask them questions? I could. Um, what's the, what's the best talk you've seen so far? What's a good? Sorry, I don't want to make. What talk should? Okay, I just got here. Yeah, okay. late What's last a good night? talk? What should we seen? see that we haven't seen that you saw? <laughs> Thank you. Sean's um, talk was good. Richard Schneeman. We just came from Richard Schneeman. Richard's talk. talk was really that was really good. Yeah. I I got stuck in the hall. I couldn't get in there, but it, I had intended to go. It's very yeah. entertaining. Definitely, very definitely, definitely watch the, the yeah. video of it. Caleb's was good on full text search. That was good. <laughs> Oh, and you definitely have to watch Nicholas Means's keynote. Oh, from, yeah. Uh, I heard, I saw the tweets about. I was it on. Was I was so good on the <laughs> runway at RDU when that was happening. It yeah. was so so good. I watched yeah. it and I was just like simultaneously like inspired and then also like, oh, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> oh, now we're all gonna feel bad. Is that what you're telling? <laughs> well, it's inspiring, and then you overcome the oh. Uh, but yeah, it's really it's really yeah. really good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, questions, questions. Come on, questions. So who here's given a conference talk? Let's do that. All right, so all of you didn't raise your hand. Why not? Yeah, okay, not yet. That's a good answer. Yeah, not yet's that's a good answer. Yeah, well, good that's, that counts. There you that's go. a very that's a That definitely counts. Yeah, leaning into it. <laughs> so, you know, I if you know my name it's because I gave a talk. It all started with a talk. Which which talk? Uh, Garuko 2009. It was a book, a talk about the solid design principles. Okay. And is I that how the book was born out of basically that talk? And um, no, that talk was because Adam Wesley was hounding me. Oh my gosh. Who okay. was hounding you? Okay, wait. A few more minutes. I went to the very first Rails. This is a this is a lesson for you all. I went to the first Rails conference in Chicago, and I went in some talk, and they were talking about something I don't know what it was, some nerdy object thing, and I went out and, and then it was really impossible to understand. Right, and it made it made everybody in the audience feel stupid, because it was one of those technical talks where people were all like, "Really, what is he? I wish I could leave, but I'm in the middle of this aisle." Right? <laughs> they were doing that, and so I went out. I was having this rant in the hall afterwards about how I hated it when people made things that seemed like I'm not the smartest guy around, but once I get something, I truly do understand it and can explain it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's the thing. That's the only thing I have. That once I get it. I can tell other people about it. And so I was having this rant about how unnecessarily complicated it was. And a woman, the woman who became my editor, Addison Wesley, was standing near me. <laughs> and so the campaign to get the book written started then in 2005. And so that talk, every time I'd go to a conference, she would be there and she would buy me an expensive meal and make me feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And I would say, no, I'm not going to write a book. And so that that talk actually happened because I'd, they were people were pushing me in that direction and so I ended up somewhere else I want I don't even remember where and actually okay let me look at the like I never talk about gender from stage I never do right <laughs> because I want to be the change we want to see 
That's what we are, right? There's a place here for everybody who's not part of the dominant culture. But at the same time, the very first time I sat on a panel, somebody, men in the audience, actually here, I'm going to enlist all the guys in here. Men in the audience came to me and they said, it is so great to see a woman on stage. I can't tell you how glad we are that you're here. And it really matters. It really matters if you, like at that first Rails conference, there were six, 600 people and there were 12 women. We all went to dinner together. We sat at a table like this together, all of us, all the women at that conference. And so after I sat on this panel, somebody, some guy from Garuko came up and said, we hope you'll submit to our CFP. And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> And then at like 11.59 on the night when the CFP was closing, like, like it took a lot, a lot of people really encouraged me. And, you know, everything that happened since then, I, I, I am the antidote for ambition. It is true. But making a place for every, like being clear about how you want the world to look changes the world. Anyway, so that was a little rant. That can't tell anybody about that because I never talk about gender from stage. <laughs> My wife graduated from a code school in August. And um, I've been encouraging her to start submitting proposals to, to uh, conferences. And um, I don't know if it got accepted, but um, she did su finally submit one to Open Source and Feelings. But I remember, like, we were having a conversation about it, and she was very nervous because she's like, oh, I'm so, I'm so uh, new at, the, at these conferences I'm attending. Like, what do I have to say that anybody else wants to hear? The thing is, that's the majority of the audience. Like, the, the majority mm -hmm. of the people in the audience are just like you at whatever level of, like, there, there, there's an audience for you at any level of experience. Uh, and I think everybody out there has something interesting that they could say, a, a story that they can tell. I mean, if you know more now than you did six months ago, so there's somebody who's where you were, and yeah. you can help them by explaining it to them. I mean, it, it's not like, you, okay, did you learn nothing? <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> like, you all know more than you did. I don't, I don't know. You know, having been in both seats now for, for me, it, it's very clear that there's nothing special about this seat. I mean, right. I mean, the thing is being brave enough to try. And I, the only reason I submitted that CFP was because I knew that I'd, I just feel, I would just hate myself forever. I felt like such a weenie for being afraid. And so I did it. And then they took it. And it was like, oh, no. Like, I thought it would be enough if I just submitted to the CFP. <laughs> no one would ever take a talk. Do you still get nervous when you speak? I don't anymore. And it is such a treat. But I'll tell you what, I was, I was ready to throw up the first time yeah. I gave a talk. Yeah. Well, and Aaron still, like, has a He's panic attack worst. every time. I know. I don't know how he continues to do. If yeah. I was as nervous as him, I would have long since quit. Yeah. So he's a really brave man. To me, to me like, the thing that got me into it was, like, I, I still, every week we do this podcast, I'm like, what do I have to say that anybody wants oh, to hear? Yeah. And the fact that people show up to listen to it live is amazing. But when I was go, I would go to a few conference talks, and I'd be like, I would go to talks of people that I really admired, and I would hear them say something. I'd be like, that's just like a thing I said. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, I knew that. I, I could have said that. I could have said that. Right. Like I, I did say that last yeah, week. Like, yeah. and then it's like, oh, they, cause that's cause they are just like yeah. me. They're where I am right now or six months ago or six months from now or like whatever the case is. So. It's not actually true. We all, we all just have um, <laughs> listening devices uh, at your home and work. And that's we probably all our talk ideas. Yeah, you've heard good talks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I, and it's one of the things that makes this, you know, I was at a conference that was mostly .NET. No, I was at a Ruby conference that had a guy that came from the .NET community. Mm -hmm. And he, he was amazed at this community. And I know there's like a drama week, right? 
but if you're if you're if you live in those other especially the sort of more rigid strict worlds it's so i asked the guy he was like this is an amazing conference and i said tell me how tell me why and he said lightning talks and i was like oh yeah there's lightning talks he was like, lightning talks? I'm like, I, I don't understand the lightning talk thing. Like, you, repeating it won't help me. Like, I need more information. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it, like, all the conferences he'd been to in the .NET world, there was, like, us and them. The people on the stage and the people in the audience. He said, the fact that you can just put your name on a board and get up and talk to people. <laughs> like, what kind of world is this? This is so crazy. So there's space. There's plenty of room. Yeah. That is one of the things because I know I know that the Swift development world has other conferences, but like WWDC is sort of the epitome of the of the people on stage and the people in the audience. I've never quite understood like because that that development community it seems to be very similar in energy level to the Ruby community, and I, I don't know. It's just yeah. What's the divide? Like what that divide is completely artificial. Yeah, it's your. I think it's. I think the in that case, like people, the reason why people get so excited about that conference is there. It's their one chance to hear from the people who are going to be delivering them the next version of the thing. Stuff. And yeah. maybe that's different now that Swift is open source. Right? Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm like, because they, they can't really do much in secret anymore, at least not on the language. Um, well, they can. <laughs> Just be like, splash, merge. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, the open source route. <laughs> All right, we're not letting you leave until somebody right. asks a question. Oh, look, we have a question. Saved. you got to come up to the mic. <laughs> so the answer to your question of why I haven't submitted a talk, I, I did, but it wasn't a very good abstract, but a couple years ago. Is that I fear the questions. Yeah, like I can I've, help with that. I've given a talk on, on a gem locally in a small group, and it was fine. But even then, with people I mostly knew, I got questions like, yeah. how does this gem that you've done a, yeah. a you know, day of research so, into interact mm -hmm. with other things? Now here, most of the people giving talks wrote those gems. Mm -hmm. so, but even then, I've seen mm -hmm. some really off-the-wall questions, like yeah. in the TurboLinks talk. Well, how does it interact with these other three Java or jQuery libraries that I like? And, and, and it seems almost unfair, but how do you prepare the depth you need to be ready for 10 minutes of yeah. Q&A when you're done? You don't. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, so, here's, so before I gave my first talk, I was horrible. That's a really terrible, like, okay, I'm afraid I'm going to trip when I go up there. I have a whole bunch of fears. I never take a water bottle that's not cl doesn't have cap. Like, no open containers for me <laughs> on stage. And, but the question is a big one, right? Because it is a place where you can maximally be revealed to be the fraud you are. <laughs> like, that's it. Q&A. And, and we've all been in talks where somebody wanted to show how smart they are yeah. by asking a really arcane question that can't possibly be answered, or they won't shut up. Like, they try to take the floor mm -hmm. at the end. But, okay, so before I gave my first talk, somebody famous, I forget who, because I'm terrible at attributions. I was in a talk where a person I thought knew everything took a question from the floor like that, and he looked at the guy and he did this. He said, hmm, I don't know anything about that. Perhaps we could talk offline. And he went right on to the next question. And I thought, that's a thing? Like, I can do that? Yep. And so part of it, like, you know, part, there's two things, right? One is, like, just say, I don't know anything about that. And it's okay. No one hates you for that. The, the other thing is to understand that the entire audience does not want that person to waste their time. And they're all rooting for you to move on. <laughs> and so your obligation is to the larger group, not to the smaller guy. So it, it'll be fine. It really will. The other, the other strategy yeah. is if it's a 40-minute talk slot, 
talk yeah, for Yeah, talk minutes. the whole time. You don't, and you or know, you don't, if it's a 40-minute talk slot and you only did 30 minutes, thank you very much, everybody. And you questions. walk off the stage. You Some don't have people to take don't questions. like Katrina doesn't take questions. She just says, I'll take questions in the hall. Yeah, you can just do it in the like hall. Go. And then if you don't know, at least it's not in yeah. front of everybody. <laughs> I mean, I, I put a big slide up that says questions at the end yeah. to indicate my willingness to take questions. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you can just say no to questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And there are some bad questions too. Like my favorite is the uh, here's here's the, the talk I wanted to give yeah, on this here, topic. That's what I was say. Here's the what, the talk mm-hmm. I wanted to give in question form. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the thing is, I gave a talk in Nepal, which mm-hmm. is my home country, uh-huh. and I knew people there, so I knew my audience. You know, they were mm-hmm. my friends, they were my old colleagues, so it was really nice and to open up what I knew and to learn from them. But when I gave the same talk in Munich, I was so freaked out you know, mm-hmm. because I didn't know my audience. And then uh, I also got like too much depressed because when I was giving the talk, people were using their phones, mm-hmm. typing on the computer. And I thought like, OK, maybe I'm wasting their time, you know. Mm-hmm. So how do you get over that fear or do you have that kind of fear? Well, yeah. But so, so here's the thing that I've discovered that. Uh, there are cultural differences in audiences. And somebody warned me the first time I gave a talk in Sweden, and I was very grateful for the warning because, man, that's a group of people that can sit on their hands, right? They don't laugh at your jokes. They don't, like, there was one woman who was, like, nodding and smiling, and I just latched onto her. <laughs> and, and then later, many, the tweets were amazing. Like, many, many people told me how much they enjoyed the talk. It's just that they're... Uh, the way that they would naturally interact with you is different. So that's one thing, right? You have to be aware that, they, and they might not hate you. It might just be how they are with everybody. The other thing is that um, most talks these days are taped and that this is an interesting idea. You can bomb in the room and win on the internet. And so you're given that talk for the people who are there live, but also for everybody who needs that information who's going to watch the video. And you just have to soldier on thinking about how much they're going to enjoy it, even if nobody in the room laughs at your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Thank you. You I bet. Think, I think it's also important just to acknowledge that, like, there are always going to be some people on their phones or on their computers because, like, somebody's saying, hey, get on stage for 40 minutes and be more entertaining than the entire Internet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you can sort of combat it a little bit by making sure you front load the really important content. Um, but there's, al- you know, it, like, at the end of the day, there's always just going to be some people who, are, who, are, who you're going to lose during the talk, and it's okay, and that's okay. I was, I was impressed by, I went to Caleb's talk yesterday, and at the beginning of the talk, he says, like, you know, there's going to be a lot of code on the slides here. Uh, if you guys, you know, you're really, if you're, not, if you're not paying attention, you're really going to miss a lot of this. So if you could please just close your laptops, that'd be great. And I was impressed by how many people many actually people did, did it. I was like, that's yeah. not going to work. And then I looked around. There <laughs> were like did. four or five people with laptops them. still open. Um, and that's their prerogative. Like, that's fine. Maybe they're taking notes. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but they're sending great tweets out. Right. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> right. Um, ben Ornstein, our coworker, has a talk on how to talk to developers. And we'll link to that in the show notes of this episode when it comes out. But you can find it basically for searching Ben Ornstein, how to talk to developers. And he talks about like finding just that one person, like you talked about, mm-hmm. the one person in the audience and just give your talk to that one person. Like just mm-hmm. find somebody who's willing to be like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who seems engaged. Right. It helps, right? <laughs> it, it, it's like so horrifying when you're up there. The, but the other thing is, you know, when you're up, if you haven't given a talk, here's the thing you probably don't know. Like it seems like you're going to get up there and they're going to hate you and want to eat you, right? Like, the, like we're a little bit hardwired when there's a lot of eyes on you to feel anxious. However, my experience even from the very first talk when I was so anxious I was about to I really literally could have thrown up I got up there and I could feel the goodwill of the audience you can really feel it when you're on stage now uh, there are some exceptions if you are unprepared they do want to eat you (laughs) 
right? If you say, oh, I just started working on my slide deck last night, I get up and leave at that point. I make too, I spend too much time on talks to spend time in a talk where the speaker's unprepared. Right. But if you work hard, if you're up there, I've seen people who are visibly shaken where their voice is shaken, and you can just feel like everybody's leaning forward trying to help them. Yeah. And so d despite how, it doesn't matter how afraid you are, if you do the work, you can feel it when you get up there, that they're grateful for your efforts. And it's comforting. One of the things that I wasn't quite prepared for when I started speaking was that when somebody's sitting in a room and watching you on stage, they're going to have neutral human expression, yeah. which looks like the entire audience is bored, but that's just how people look in a, in a crowd. And I remember I was telling, uh, Derek and I were talking about this afterwards, and, um, and he said, well, what do you, what did you, you know, I, was, I was explaining, like, the room was really quiet, and he says, what did you expect, somebody to just get up and shout yes in the middle of your talk? And then he gives his first talk, and exactly that happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when I was like, oh, okay. That, like, it totally did. Like, it was halfway through the presentation, and I thought it was going well, but it totally, like, once that happened, I was like, all right, that guy likes this yeah, talk. Yeah, totally. And I was like. It's very comforting, <laughs> right, to have one emotive person. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I also have another question. So I'm from Munich. So are you planning to give any talk in Munich soon? <laughs> I'm or uh, Germany. <laughs> I there there's a, there was a con there's like some conference in Dusseldorf that I'm talking to some people about. It's, but it's in like summer of 2017. I don't I'm know about it. Extremely <laughs> booked. You should send me an email. Sure. Yeah. I think she'll so come talk at your house. Okay. Talk sure. <laughs> we can meet in a coffee bar. <laughs> Thanks we get a, a beer in Munich. Yeah. Thank you. We just had to warm people up. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it, you know, th that's another speaker trick too. If you want questions, very often you almost it helps to get a friend of yours to have a question prepped. You notice what happened in here, the first person that asked a question, then, it, then it's like there's a new rule. It's a psychology thing, right? A new rule got made. That the rule was you can't ask questions, and now the rule is you can. And so if you can get someone to trip that if you want questions, it'll, you, the awkward part of waiting around while someone gets up the inner nerve to do it, you can skip that part. Well, and it feels so much longer than it is, yeah. right? Because it feels like, because it, it'll be, you know, the time of somebody going, is anybody else asking this one? No? no. Okay, I think, uh, I, I think I have a question, right? And yeah. that feels like a good five minutes on stage. Mm. <laughs> Eternity, really. Megan. Hey, so I recently inherited a code base, and it's nasty. Uh, and I want to fix it so bad that it pretty much hurts. Mm -hmm. um, but I work for a small company, and I'm on a very small team, and there's not a lot of time with, you know, strict deadlines. Not only that, but there's a lot to do, so it can be daunting. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if maybe you have any tips for balancing, you know, the need to better your code versus um, handling business need as well. Yes, I do. All right. So I, I would get, okay, here's the thing. If it's a mess and you never touch the code again, you should just ignore it. And, and so the trick is knowing what messes are costing you money and gradually making those better. And that's the, that churn versus complexity plot, right? And so the, the next trick is, all right, I'm going to try to be efficient here. This one thing that's like we often, okay, when confronted by the big mess, we often feel like we have to say, I don't know, you know, I have to tell someone if I'm going to do a refactoring. I have to ask for refactoring. And the other thing I would tell you is that they pay us for our judgment and that refactoring is a thing we do every day as part of every feature, that happens. What our customers don't want is our velocity to gradually slow to zero. And so if every time, you, like you know that code is going to change because it does, right? Like if you're asked to work on a feature and the code is messy right there, make it a little better. 
and just do that every time you touch it. And I, don't, I would never advocate lying to the, your customers or the people that pay the bills, but they are paying you to make good choices for them. And part of that is to clean up while you're there. And so do it, just do a little bit of it all yeah. the time. Yeah, so chiseling away makes yeah, it a lot chisel less daunting there, than the... I've seen a number of large rewrites fail. I've never seen the chisel away process fail. Okay, thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah just do it. <laughs> Last chance. Then we go, okay, you know what's happening right now? Happy hour? Oh, wait, there's a question. No, we're not <laughs> going to happy hour now. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to the talks, fear, and whatever. Mm -hmm. Suppose I'm brave. How do you choose the topic to talk about? Like a topic that everyone would like. That's my problem. Like I don't know what to talk about. Yeah, yeah. If you are excited about it, they will like it. Sure, but how do you choose the topic is... What should I talk about? What I do every day? Some blog post I, I wrote about? So here's a question I would ask you, right? Do you, what do you know right now that you wish your present self could tell yourself from a year ago? What have you learned that you could, like probably some things happened that were hard for you now that you, your current you could have saved past you a bunch of time. Do, can you think of anything that, would, that you could tell your past self? that would summarize your experiences over this year that would have improved your life? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. that's your talk. So it's something you work every day, like you are not the only, every day. Like, like you're not unique. Lots and lots of people want to know the stuff you know now. Past you, there's a lot of people just like past you. That's the thing, right? We feel like, oh, nobody could possibly care. It's like lots and lots of people care. And so if you, you can really help like the thing that you would do that would help past you is enormously helpful to all the people that are today in the position that past you is in. And so probably if you just make a list every day, every time you learn something, if you write it down, pretty soon you'll have a whole whiteboard full of things that are topics that other people are going to find really interesting. Mm -hmm. Do it. All right? If you're <laughs> having that thought, do it. I, really, like being a speaker at conferences changes your life in ways that are really so many ways that I can't even, I won't even try to articulate them. But I, I think that it has made such a difference to me. I want everyone to have that experience. It's a really good thing. And you, there's no reason why you can't do it. You know, the difference between sitting out there and sitting up here is very small. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you bet. You know, one of the other things, too, that I think is just important to understand when submitting talks to conferences, because we, t like, that's one of the things that doesn't get a lot of coverage, is unfortunately, uh, getting accepted at conferences is less about being good at speaking and more about being good at writing abstracts. abstracts. <laughs> Eventually, once you've given enough talks, and you're, if you're good at speaking, you start to get invitations, but it always just comes down to you have to get through the CFP process. There's some really good blog articles, um, especially the one, uh, one written by Sarah May, which I don't remember the title of, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, but uh, it really is about, there, there are so many talks, I've had great abstracts and have been terrible talks. And I'm sure that there are plenty of amazing talks that got rejected because yeah. they didn't have uh, they just yeah. did the, they it's didn't a, have a good abstract. You have like 350 characters to sell yourself to strangers. Yeah. Like picture yourself flipping through that program uh, as somebody going to the conference and figure out why somebody would read what you have to say and come to your talk. Yeah. Like what are they what are they going to get out of it more than what you are going to tell them? And that's that's basically 
what I got out of Sarah's thing, which was excellent. And like, mm. that's how I got excited. Like I wrote my first abstract then I read Sarah's thing and I was like, oh my God, yep. I'm going to go back over here and rewrite this thing. Uh, so, yeah. Well, and submit it to a lot of conferences because it'll get accepted to one and rejected for 15. Like right. that, that's, just, that's just how it ends up working. And you know, what I would say is make your talk on spec and give it at local user groups mm-hmm. and tape it and submit a link to it. Yeah. Like conference organizers really, like imagine you're a conference organizer, right? Especially a small regional one-track conference where they pick eight or nine talks and they try to get some, you know, they, they do a blind draw. And then even once they know who the people are, they pick some strangers because they want new voices. And then imagine that one of those people shows up completely unprepared. Like, have you ever been in that talk? I have. And so you're evident, if you can give them evidence that you will be prepared, <laughs> you can win based on that. But it means putting the whole talk together, even if you don't know any conference is ever going to pick it. You learn a lot from putting a yeah. talk together. <laughs> it's good moral fiber. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Should we wrap up? Yes. Thanks very much, Sandy. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming. It was great to have you on. It was a treat. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 70. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes and Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website, or find us in the hallway. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. That was great.